I'm not going back over what I missed. That's on me. I forgot to turn the recorder on, but we're just going to keep going. Did I just jump from one up? Oh, yep, three. Point three here. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So is there anything you can do to make yourself justified before God? How do we receive justification? Through Christ, by believing in Him and what He has done. Isn't that such a simple message? How can we complicate it in our brains? That's why we come back and have boot camp. Because we get so... We get lost on little points. Because remember last week I talked about we think linearly. We don't always think big picture. We start, God will speak to us about something and we'll focus on that for the whole, you know, three, four, five, six months. And in the process of focusing on one little thing, we forget the big picture. And then we make it complicated because we've forgotten the big picture. Or we've forgotten the simplicity of it. It is simple. In its purest form, it is simple. We are not justified by any work of the law. We are not justified by any human endeavor. We are not justified by me trying to be good or you trying to be good. That's the wrong tree. We are justified by the fruit of the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. He gives us grace, which is the fruit. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> or John 1, 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Because if you do, you have grace and truth in your life. If you believe he is the Son of God, and that he finished what he said he finished, then you have grace and truth in your life. Bottom line is it can't be taken away. You might not always be conscious of it, but it's always, always, always there. I should do a Don Keithley and say, can I get an Amen. <laughs> So we're going to talk about, as part of this boot camp, there's this burden of communication. Anybody, anybody ever take a speech class? Or, or go through some kind of motivational speaking seminar? Whose responsibility is it to communicate a message? The speaker, the person who wants to communicate the message, has the responsibility to do it. So the burden of communication rests upon, oh, that's, that should be a person who wants to communicate something. Isn't it amazing when it, how it jumps up and you see your own spelling mistakes when you see it on the big screen? That should be person. So in the, in the relationship with God, whose responsibility is it to communicate the essence of God himself? His. When do I get into trouble in the communication modality with God? 
We get into trouble when the person listening tries to superimpose their personal beliefs or script on scriptural context. Our Western cultural mindset, that's when we get in trouble. And we'll back up to those other screens in a minute. But when, if the burden of communication is on God, God speaks. You think God can speak clearly? How come that I misinterpret what he says? Because I'm superimposing my expectations, my thoughts, my cultural preferences over his word. That's when I get in trouble. Did God write scripture in a Western cultural perspective? No. He wrote scripture in the context of the historical background of the Middle East, the people groups of the Middle East, and the context of the law once it was imposed. That's how he began to disclose himself and to convey himself outside of creation. Creation always is a canvas of God. But we don't always look at creation. Sometimes, I mean, we look at creation if we're an entrepreneur and we go, oh, that would make an interesting thing. And then we convert that. And, and, and so we lose sight of the creation. But, you know, the eye is one of the most intricate organs of a body. And in that intricacy, if you really study it, you have to come to the conclusion there is a God. Because it would be almost impossible to think otherwise. So let me back up here. So the burden of communication, you know, is about the person who wants to communicate. And so it is God who testifies concerning himself. If you look at John 3, 33, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is truth. How do you know that? He set his seal to it. Where's the seal? In your heart. It's in your spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes so intertwined with you, he testifies to the truth. You ever have one of those aha moments where you knew that you knew that you knew that was true and that came from God? That's the Holy Spirit setting, setting a seal. John 5, 32. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always testifying about Jesus. In John 8, 18. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So Jesus testifies and the Father testifies. Should we be surprised? Because aren't they all united? And isn't the Spirit of God united with our spirit? So when they're in their perichoritic circle going, our spirit's hearing that. When Jesus goes, hey, Dad, that was a good, that was a good one. Our spirit hears that. And so we can rest in the assurance that God is always talking. And he's always testifying about who he truly is. Not who man thinks he is, but who he truly is. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Anybody want to join me? Amen. See? And how do I know that? Because I know that I know that I know. Somewhere inside of me, I just know. And it's not something I debate. Romans 9.1 I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. 
There's the conscious awareness that comes as it percolates up through our spirit. And all of a sudden we go, aha. And at that moment, we're, we're not shaken. Once it is settled, we won't be shaken. But a lot of us have things that we have to undo because we have listened to the testimony of man about God. And that has come oftentimes from our Western cultural mindset. And then we took it as truth because at the moment it sounded good and it sounded like it resonated. But it was only a partial truth because it had a mixture of man in there. And you know, the more we focus on the God of grace, the quicker we can identify that mixture. And we go, I can take that, but I'm not taking that. Even with some of the worship. I mean, the worship songs today, the one line I hate about Amazing Grace is that it calls me a wretch. I am not a wretch. But when that song was written, it was the common cultural perspective of the time, but everything else in that song today was like, oh yeah. It resonated as truth. And, and am I going to throw the truth out just because of one line in the song? No. Why? Because I'm mature enough in my belief and in who I believe I am that I can go, that's not me. It's okay. It fit well with the song, but it's not me. But I love the song. I love the tempo of it. I love the focus on Jesus in the middle of it. But one word. But we don't throw out the good with one with one bad word. John one or John first John five six. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. I know we've all had this, this conversation with ourselves. God, how could I have missed this grace message? We've all had that conversation, right? And the reality is, if the burden of communication lies with him, it's his responsibility to release it at the right moment into our consciousness. Right? I am not going to beat myself up because of 20 plus years ago, I was Mr. Anal. I'm so anal. I'm so anal. I'm so anal for my own good. <laughs> See, I got a laugh out of you today. You see, we got to be able to laugh at stuff like that because otherwise we're going to go, you silly, stupid fool. Why couldn't you get that earlier? Because I wasn't ready. And it's okay. We've talked about such a time as this before. Yeah. It's the such a time as this that brings it to the fruition of the now. He wasn't... He wasn't bummed that I didn't get it 20 years ago. He wasn't. But I so much appreciate it more because of where I've been the last 20 years. If we want to understand what God is speaking, we will have to accept that God is not speaking with a Western cultural mindset. We cannot plug God into our Western box. He is just so big. And to him, all lives do matter. And we will have to be diligent in not superimposing our own mindset upon, upon God's communication. When we're reading the word, 
If we're reading from a Western cultural mindset, we are trying to put fit God into our idea of who he is. But God has said, I am the I am. Get out of your Western box, and I'm looking in probably December or January doing a set of teachings on getting out of our Western box and getting back into our scriptural box, okay? But you can start right now reading scripture from the perspective of grace by looking at Jesus. When you read about Jesus and you look at grace, keeping in mind that before the cross, he was speaking some pretty intense things to the Jewish people because he's trying to wake them up out of their error. And so he'll be intense with us when he needs to be. And then we need to trust him to speak truth to us. Do we trust God to speak truth? Do we trust God to correct us if we get too far out of bounds? You know, because I'm just human, and sometimes I just like to lallygag around and not figure out where I'm going. And I like to go over here, and I like to go over there. But I trust him to say, Terry, get back, get back on the right path. Come back, come back to truth, Terry. That's why we come back to boot camp. That's why I felt so intense about boot camp. Come back to and come back to basics. God can always speak to me about coming back to basics. And I trust him to do that. So I don't sit there and fret, am I in error? I have enough people around me that believe in grace that will tell me, uh, Terry, you might want to rethink that. And I certainly know at one o'clock in the morning God's voice. Because we've had that converse, a conversation about speaking to someone about truth a week last week and a half ago. I was up at one o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, it's not my favorite time to be awake. I've been a lot awake a lot lately at one o'clock in the morning. But at one o'clock in the morning, God was said, "I want you to talk to this person, and I want you to talk about this." And as He's outlining those things, it's a reminder to me. As you're speaking to other people, it's a reminder to yourself what God is saying to you about how much he loves you when he's talking. Tell you, you, do, you go tell so-and-so how much I love them. And tell them that you're praying that God fulfill the desires of their hearts so they can be joyful and happy. Wow, he's praying for that for me too. <laughs> you know? Whew. So the burden of communication rests with the person who wants to communicate. We talked about the person listening must not superimpose their personal beliefs or cultural context into the listening process. And so why do we go back to basics? Talked about this last week. There's a tendency as we begin to step into an awakening of the gospel of grace to want to intellectualize the message along the lines of how we approach God before the great awakening. Before our moment of awakening to the fullness of grace, we try to put him in the box. We try to intellectualize him believing at that moment that we were actually letting the Spirit of God teach us, but we still didn't have the full picture. And we have a greater picture today, but I don't think we have it all yet. That we have this freedom that's come with grace. We have this freedom that has come in the process of that. But I am telling you, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm beginning to hear a sense of, I don't want to say this, inside the grace community and beginning to, to hear this critical spirit starting to rise up. Like we've arrived and they haven't. And if we ever get to that place here, guys, slap me in the face. Okay? 
Because you know what? We haven't arrived. We have a different position on the road. And we still have brothers and sisters who are still in bondage to the, to the law. But that doesn't mean they don't love Jesus. To explain the criticalness or to explain... I would, I would always take them back to, to Paul's writings in Galatians and Ephesians where Paul says we're not led by the law. The law is gone, but we're led by the Spirit of God in grace and truth. And it's the faith of Jesus, not our faith. Those are, that's, and we're going to talk about two of those verses today. But you take them back to Paul. Okay? Don't, don't, go, to, don't go run into James with them and don't run into Peter because James and Peter were, were writing to, as we watched Thursday night, they were writing to the Jews. I want to take them to the Gentiles. Paul was writing to the Gentiles. Let's get this down first. And as you that awakens, then you can begin to understand John and Peter and, Paul and James later. But I would take them back to, how would you like some freedom in your life beyond what you've ever experienced before? How would, how would you like to know the love of God in such great measure? Let me show you what it says here in, in Paul's writings. Look at this. Wow. Have you ever seen it that way before? And I would just be upbeat with them. Yeah. You know, isn't it encouraging when Paul says the burden's not on us, but it's on Jesus? Wow. And then you just keep encouraging them to relook at what they know. And not be condemning. I just want to make sure we don't become develop this big brother syndrome. This, you know, that we've arrived and you haven't. That's going to be a problem. And I and I, I'm going to be quick to point that out to people in the future. Not because I'm not. None of you are going to go there, so I don't worry about you. But I'm in some. I'm in some focus groups and on Facebook and, and you know people. When sometimes when they get get a fresh awakening, they go way too far the other way. You know what I'm saying? So I'm gonna be a little patient until they come start to move back. But if they don't start to move back, I am gonna say a few things because it's not about being critical. It's about being gracious. Thank you, Carol. It is. It's not about turn or burn. And that's beginning to hear the twinge of that turn or burn from your law. No. So we are always gonna be gracious people. And I want to encourage you with that because I wouldn't want somebody to slam it down my throat because I didn't ha I didn't catch it 20 years ago. You're right. You're absolutely right. And, and so the best way to handle that is to always come back to the goodness side of it. Encourage them in the goodness. Encourage them in the freedom. Encourage them, and they can go. Oh, I don't have. To, you mean I don't have to perform for God? I mean, if you say to somebody, "You don't have to perform for for God," they're going to go, "What?" And you just the minute they go, what? Something started. And you can, you can speak to that. And so I just want to encourage you to that because you're going to encounter people all the time. Periodic returning to basics will keep our minds set on the person of grace, Jesus Christ, and help us avoid institutionalizing the message. And that's what I was just talking about. The, the, you know, if we start to become critical, we're institutionalizing the message ourselves. And then that's just not where we want to be. 
Can I get an amen? Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. And in addition, we tend to think linearly, which I mentioned earlier. And as a result, when we focus on one aspect of grace, we tend to put the other stuff on the shelf. And then we get lose sight of that. And so then we have to dust it off. Coming back to the basics, we're dusting off, you know, things. And we review them so that we don't lose sight of the big picture. Now, moving along. Goal of boost boot camp. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And I went back at this week and I looked at some of the Greek words in here. And remember I said to you last week that what if giving of our bodies was more about making ourselves available to God than setting a behavioral standard? That's what I found when I went back this week and looked at the Greek word for some of those. It's about we make ourselves available to God. We don't get focused on our actions and our behaviors because then we step back into legalism. We trust God and out of the goodness of our heart that we'll make good choices. But it's about being available to him. And then don't, this is verse two, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Good. Does God want, it, want something bad for you? No. Does he want you to be unhappy? No. Does he want you to be imperfect? No. And he declares you perfect in righteousness. Again, it's not about behaviors. It's about position. You are positionally perfect before God. And nobody can take that away from you. Because Jesus said it is finished once and for all. So he's positioned you perfectly. He's positioned you perfectly so that you can know the goodness of God and be pleased with God and what he's doing in your life. And I just think that's fascinating. Things to look at, we talked about briefly. This is just a recap before I even get to my message. He is truly good. And what's love got to do with it? Am I truly identified with Christ? Do I truly bear the image and likeness of God? Who is God? And which tree do I eat from? The problem of duality and anything else that I have forgotten, as I mentioned, or anything else the bishop wants to deem important. Those are what we talked about last week a little bit, is setting this up. So when we looked at the foundations of grace, God is good. God is agape love. God is grace. God manifested grace to us in Christ. Grace is fulfilled in Christ, not by our doing. And our role is to believe and receive. So we're going to look at God is good. Well, that was one we looked at last week. Today we're looking at, no, last week we looked at God is. This week we're looking at God is good. All right, that sets that up. Now that's where I want to start. You can all say, Amen. Yeah. The word good is used 655 times in Scripture in the NASB. Do you think that means God has something to say about good? He does. Primary Hebrew word for good is, is tov. And it means pleasant, agreeable, kind, benign, rich, valuable in estimation, and happy. You know what? God is pleasant. Because he says he's good, right? God is good. So it means he's pleasant. He's not the angry God waiting with the bow and arrow to shoot you. 
He's agreeable. He's kind. He's benign, which means he's not against you. He's rich. Our dad's rich. He's valuable in estimation and happy. That's what goodness is, or good means. And the primary Greek word for good is agathos. And it means of good constitution or nature, pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy, excellent, distinguished, upright, and honorable. See how those, those, two, those two words sort of blend that concept throughout Scripture? God is good. He's got a good constitution or nature. Duh! It's because he's love. He's pleasant. I used to be afraid of God. God, if you stay in your box over there, I'll stay in my box over here, and if our two boxes don't collide, I'm okay with that. Anybody been there? That's where I was. God's joyful. He's happy. He's upright. He's honorable. He's upright and honorable means he's never going to violate his word. He's never going to lie to you. He's always speaking truth. He never talks in lies. First Chronicles 17, 26. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And I've just picked out a few scriptures, but you can go read 650 of them if you want. They're not all about God, but they're all about the concept of good. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, 6. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Would you, will you take refuge in, in God if you don't think he's good? If you don't think he has your best interests at heart? If you think God is out to get something for himself, are you inclined to want to take refuge in him? I don't think so. Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And that phrase is almost exactly repeated in Psalm 118, 1. 119.39 and 136.1. And that's when they were under the law. When they were living under the law, the psalmist wrote that God is good. And that's when behavior on their part mattered. Because they had a contract, covenant contract with God. I'll do good, you'll do good to me. How much more good is he now that we know I mean, how much more good is he in our understanding now that we know it's grace and not law? Take those verses and amplify the understanding of goodness. Oh my goodness. Not mine, his. Matthew 19, 17. And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And again, this is before the cross. Mark 10, 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I mean, this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, the same concept. Luke 18, 9. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, where are you right now positionally? In Christ. Christ is good. You are good. You are not a wretch. You are not a worm. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are good. Because we are one with him. And only the one is good and those who are with him. 
John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. These are all just concepts or scriptures talking about God being good. And we're good because we are positionally with him. How many places have you been in your life where you've heard messages that God, God was good, but you're not? See, that's some of that Western cultural mindset that's being undone. Questions to ponder. Do you believe God has ever held back on you? Do you believe God could give you what you need but has chosen not to? Do you think you can do certain things to influence God or change his mind about something? If so, you don't have a full grasp of, his, of the concept of God is good. If you're struggling in that, that area, you haven't fully resolved in your heart that God is good. If I believe God is good, then I have to believe that he's never held out on me. That doesn't mean I'm going to get everything I want. But doesn't he say that he gives me everything I need? And you know, he, he's so good that even if you do a legalistic prayer, he goes, well, I'll, I'll filter out the legalism, but I'll get to the root of what's going on. So... I don't, I'm not too concerned about how we pray right now. I've changed my prayer life. We talked about that for those that were there Thursday. My prayer life has changed. I'm not begging God because I understand he is good. And that there is a plan of goodness at work in my life that he has orchestrated from before the foundation of the universe. And I rest in that. So, you know, it's 18 and a half weeks now with this I thing. And I have another nine weeks to go before they can do another surgery, timing-wise. The earliest a doctor that wants to do it is available is nine more weeks from now. I am not going to fret for nine weeks that God is not taking care of me. I have nine weeks for the manifestation of a creative miracle. And even if I don't see the manifestation of the creative miracle, it doesn't mean God is not good. You were going to ask something? Yeah, Fasting. What about it? Well, you know, fasting, we've been taught to fast and pray. And that was, you know, a lot of fasting to me is like another way of saying having favor with God or getting God to move on your behalf. And God says, I've already done everything I'm going to do. It is finished. There's no more fasting. Fasting fasting doesn't move God. It changes changes us. It opens us up but it doesn't change God. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I always read that and understood fasting to be on flip-flop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And before the cross, he told us, he, they taught, he, he had a discussion with the Pharisees about fasting. He had a discussion with the disciples about fasting before the cross. But after the cross, at the cross, he said, it is finished. If it's finished, what else is he going to do? If he set the entire plan of redemption in motion through it is finished, I mean, if he's brought the final chapter into motion, what else is he going to do? That's the question we all have to ask. I kind of look at it as, okay, it's like testing our obedience. (laughs) But it's Jesus' obedience that saved me, not mine. Right, but like he's wanting to see us 
prepared to receive. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's what we've all that's what we've all yeah. wrestled with. And you'll yeah. You're doing great, Jill. You're, you're right on the right track. Do you believe God could give you what you, we talked about this? I mean, I believe that God gives me what I need at that moment. I may not always agree with what he thinks I need, but I believe he gives me what I need. And, and I don't think I can change his mind about something that he says is already finished. Now, it doesn't mean I can't ask for a greater revelation of the manifestation of what is finished. It doesn't mean I can't say, God, I don't understand. Show me more clearly truth. Those are prayers that I think are, are those don't, they're not changing him. They're changing me. They're, well, God, I want you to know more of you. Those kinds of things. And so I think those are questions we all have to wrestle with and come to a completion on. Scriptures to help us. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him uh, over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, Jesus put it in place, and now we have this good father who gives good gifts to his children. Matthew 5, 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if he sends rain on the unrighteous, how is my fasting going to change his response to me? He's already sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But somehow I had been taught in the past that when I fast, I'll get more rain. Or I'll get more than these unrighteous people over here. But I send my rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't say I send less on them and more on them or more on them and less on them. He says I send it to everyone. So, something to ponder. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Wow, Dad. I just want your goodness, Dad. Okay. If you then be an evil, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then be an evil, how know how to give good gifts? You see, again, there's this theme that this keeps being repeated. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He wants to give us goodness. Goodness. God's goodness manifests as loving kindness, not as judgment in your day to day walk, but as loving kindness in your day to day walk. Genesis 19, 19, before the law. Now behold, your servant was, has found favor in your sight. This is Abraham. And you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and, and die. I'm sorry, this is Lot talking, not Abraham. This is Lot. Lot lived in this village that was depraved, Right? rapid depravity, sexual depravity in this village. The messengers from God comes and he sends his daughters out to the door to protect the messengers from God. I'm still struggling to figure that one out. I think the messengers from God probably could have protected themselves. He's trying to appease his neighbors. He's trying to appease the evil. And in the midst of that, God magnifies his loving kindness. 
Go figure. Why? Because God can't help himself. That's who he is. That's what he does. He magnifies his loving kindness to you as well. It's his loving kindness that has brought us into this greater awareness of truth. I'm good with that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh my gosh. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, truthful. And I'd like to give it away. So dead. Thank you. Psalm 23, 6, the 23rd Psalm. I mean, that's some of our favorite Psalms, right? For most people. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When it seems like life is, you know, a, a, living in the pits, it really is a bowl of cherries. Remember, remember? That, that whole, there was that whole season. I can't remember who said that now. But even when our days don't seem like they're going well, his loving kindness and goodness follow me all the days of my life, running to overtake me. Psalm 31, 19 and 20. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man, and you keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. In his goodness, he hides us from the conspiracies of man. Something that jumped out at me. Jeremiah 31, 13, and 14. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. When we keep our focus on him and on his goodness, we will be satisfied. So when I start going, but God, what about this? How come I don't have that? But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus, and soon I don't feel so full of goodness and joy. I've taken my focus off him and started looking at my circumstances and I start falling off the cliff instead of walking on air. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Uh-oh. Who's full of goodness? We are. Filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. You are full of goodness. Go, Jesus. Go, Jesus. I got goodness. I got goodness. Why? Because we're so intertwined with him, we're, in, we're inseparable. His goodness becomes my goodness. In Galatians 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patient kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is, this is all flowing out of the foundation of love. You are good. In Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now 
Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You walk in your goodness. Not because you inherently are good, but because he who is in you is good and he has brought you into his goodness. And that comes out in the form of light. The essence of goodness is kindness, favor, mercy, pity, reproach, meaning correction, virtue, and, and his kindness towards you is full of his giving. You know, reproach, correction. Goodness means he will correct us. And it's okay. It's not a, it's not a statement that he's mad. It's a statement that we've wandered from truth. So he goes, it's like the good shepherd goes, come on, come on. Nudges us back to goodness and truth. So do you see yourself as worthy of God's goodness and can you receive it? Because if the answer is no, then you're still working on God is good. You're still working on the fullness of what that means out of grace. And you know what? It's okay. If the answer is no, or if the answer is sometimes, it's okay. It just means you're on the path to greater discovery. And I don't know about you, but I enjoy discovering things of God. Foundations of grace. We need to look at, we've looked at God as good. We looked at God is, God is good, and now God is agape love. And I, I want to do briefly on this because I'm going to come back in a few weeks and hit this harder. 1 John 4, 8. For God is love. And the mirror says, love is who God is. They are inseparable. In other words, God, the essence of God is love. That's who he is. He will never, ever act contrary to his essence. And agape is affection, goodwill, love, benevolence, brotherly love. And that's the term that defines God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind. It is his ongoing, outgoing self-sacrificing concern for people. And God gives us love without condition, unreservedly. Agape love is always outwardly focused. We've talked about that before. How can God look at us and see Jesus? Because his love is always outwardly focused. And when we have developed that awareness of Jesus and what he's done in our life, God is always our biggest Cheerleader. My inner cheerleader is nothing compared to God's. For those of you who missed it, we had game night Friday night, and pastor's got an inner cheerleader in him. Okay. <laughs> but my inner cheerleader is nothing like his ongoing, everyday cheerleading. He goes, Diane, you're the best. There's nothing we can't do today. And he goes, Jill, you're the best. There's nothing we can't do today. Oh, by the way, here's some more truth. Because it's always outwardly focused. He's not asking anything from us. He is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and needs nothing from us. But what he desires is the joy of union. There's not one thing you can do that enhances who God is. That should say, I should be able to relax when I come to the realization that God doesn't need me, but he wants to be with me. God doesn't need you, but he wants to be with you. 
Now it's not about performance. I don't have to stand on my head in the corner, which I never could do anyway. It was an ugly mess. It was ugly seeing me trying to stand on my head in the corner. I don't have to, I don't have to do that to have a relationship with God. 1 John 3.16, out of the mirror. Love is known in its other-centeredness, just as Jesus laid down his life for us to free his love within us for others. We can be as other-centered as God if we choose to be. We have to choose to be. When I get up in the morning and go, God, who are we going to touch today? That's a decision. Because I can get up in the morning and be a grump if I want to. Doesn't mean he isn't going to love me. Doesn't mean he isn't going to try to pull me out of my grumpiness. But I get to be a grump if I want to be. And if I came in here on Sunday and was the grumpiest of grumps, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'd be preaching to myself after a while. Even the bishop would have banned me. <laughs> and so, out of all of this in the creation of man, you know, Genesis 1.26, God says we're created, in, he's created us in his image and his likeness. He created us, male and female, to reflect him. Pulls us in, comes in union with us, and everyone we encounter, we have the opportunity to reflect the part of God to, or impart, or convey a part of God to. And that did not change with Adam's choice. Man has been created out of the love and in the agape image of God. When God breathed life into man, part of that life was, was to experience his agape love so we could share it with others. The more we share it with others, the bigger the family gets. And God likes a big family. He wants a big family. And I remember, it was, I think it was Donna was saying something the other day about somebody who's, who was putting a finger basically in somebody's son's face and saying, or, or to this person, you, you need to get that son to turn. You need to get him to repent and change his life. And I'm sitting there going, and Donna was telling me that, I'm going, that ain't going to work. Because <laughs> he's probably heard that message already. But if you go, you know what? God thinks you're cool. Tell that to someone who doesn't even believe in God. God thinks you're cool. And then give them a word of knowledge. Wow. They got to go away going. Mm. Went back to Applebee's Sunday or Thursday with my cousin again. And the ladies that we've ministered to, or I ministered to the week before, the same waitress. And I said to her, well, how was your week? She goes, you know, after you gave me that word of encouragement about going and speaking what was in my heart that I didn't want to speak to my husband, I went to speak to him and it went a whole lot better than I thought it was going to. Jesus. God's love is not deterred by the fall. We've talked about in the past. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If God's love was deterred by Adam's choice, Jesus couldn't have done anything about it. You can just see, you can just see God, oh, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Adam just, Adam just messed up. He just messed up and I don't have a plan. I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to give up on humanity. No, because we know from before the foundation of the universe, he already had a plan and it was Jesus. He wasn't surprised. See, we've talked about before, 
the agape love of God is willing to take a risk. It's willing to take a risk and you're saying today, nope, don't want to do that today. And he's okay with that. Because you don't define him. But he's also very, very much, very experiences great joy when you say, yeah, let's do that together, Jesus. And here's the mirror in John 3.16. The entire cosmos is the object of God's affection. Are you part of the cosmos? Are you the object of his affection? Yeah. And he's not about to abandon his creation. The gift of his son is for the humanity to realize their origin in him who mirrors their authentic birth. Begotten not of the flesh, but of the Father. You are of the Father. Sorry if that doesn't sit well with you, but you are of the Father. It sits well with me. It is well with my soul. And after the fall, after the Adam's choice, Jesus answered and said, I say unto you with absolute certainty that everyone engaging in the distorted mindset of sin is a slave to it. Sin is not about things you do or don't do. Sin is missing out on sonship. The sin system is governed by the idea of justification by personal effort. How many days do I need to fast? Performance and pretense, which is the typical fruit of the I am not mindset which Peter refers to as the feudal ways we inherited from our fathers. Oh, that's where all of that junk came from. We inherited from the people around us. The difference between the slave and the son is that the slave only works there. For the son, the father's house is home. And with the freedom found in sonship, there is no pretense. That's John 8, 34-36, out of the mirror. It is not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about sonship. Who adopted us? God adopted us. Did you have any participation in the certificate of adoption? Mm-hmm. You think he was looking at your choices and going, I'm not going to adopt that one. Man, that, that Terry Heist, man, I don't think I can get my head around him. He's just too much for me to handle. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. John 10, 17, out of the mirror. My father's love is the compelling urgency of my mission, which is to lay down my life and receive it again in my resurrection, which he did. He's compelled by love. Reach out. Don't reach out to touch someone. Jesus reached out and touched you. And he's going, coochie, coochie, coo. Tickle, tickle, tickle. Joy, joy, joy. All right, that brings us up to the first couple of points, and I think that sets up where Greg probably wants to go next week, I'm hoping anyway. I was sort of trying to draw it together. God is good. God is. He's good, and his goodness is for you. And when you settle that in your heart, that even opens up the fullness of grace even more.